you're like me, and I hope you are, but only in the good things, not in the bad ones, then there are times when you are almost overwhelmed in your gratitude to our Lord for all that he has done for us. And since I think so highly of you, I'm sure of it. I am sure that there are times when your heart wells up in you, sometimes spilling out in tears, and and at other times maybe you might laugh out loud for the joy of it all. And especially, I think, at the times uh, of the year like this when we remember the death and resurrection of our Savior. And I believe that for you, like me, that gratitude, that gratefulness to our God is translated into this deep desire to honor him and to make our life count for him. And not just when those feelings which almost overwhelm come upon us, and not just at Easter or Christmas or when we have experienced some other blessing from God, but even in the dry times, uh, the hard times, the times of no feelings or of bad feelings. Our relationship with God is real, and it weathers the storms of life and the everydayness of life too. I believe your faith is real and not a fair-weather faith, but a, a living thing pulsing with the life of God, even when we ourselves are feeling dead. So your desire and mine to make our life count for Christ is built on something larger than ourselves and is itself a good thing. Now, culturally, we, we have a problem carrying this out because Besides the difficulty of sin and besides the obvious issue of uh, the inherent um, sin that is in us, uh, it is a society that is quickly becoming post-Christians. But as Americans, we, we tend towards self-sufficiency, and that, that's a good quality, actually, if we don't lose sight of the fact that none of us are islands. You see, God designed humans to live in community, and for Christians, after our family, the first and primary community that we have is our church. And, and although we are overcoming that cultural issue, that, that negative expression of a, a good quality which says, I can do it all by myself, I don't need anyone else, I, I'm not sure that we would be very quick to realize that our excess in our life as Christians is tied very closely to the success of our church. The two really go hand in hand. In order for the church to be all that it can be, all that God wants it to be, you have to be growing in your faith. And for you to be all that God wants you to be, well, your church is a vital part of that process. And so if you really want your life to count for Christ, then you ought to want to know how that works and how those things work together and and what your part in all of that is. Unfortunately, the Bible has a good deal to say about that. And one place in particular ties those two things together, and that's our text for this morning. So I'm going to invite you to join me in Ephesians this morning, chapter 4, where we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 16. And of course, uh, the guys up in a cave will have it on the screens on either side of me. There are four things 
there in Ephesians. There are four things that we're going to see there. One of the things the text tells us is what a good church looks like. Now, that's actually where the passage concludes, but that's where we uh, will begin this morning. But it also tells us three uh, other things, and let's call them dynamics, which work together uh, to bring about that good church. These three things are essential if we are to have a good church. I have to tell you, there's a lot of detail in this chapter, and we're going to go over it rather quickly, and we're going to do so in order that we can see the larger picture and how all these things fit together. And this text doesn't tell us everything that there is to say about the church. I mean, we've talked about other, uh, other things about the church, other truths about the church in uh, these last couple of months. But, but it does tell us this. It tells us that a good church, one that pleases God, one which helps us make our lives count for Christ, well, well this text tells us also that a church is in a process A church like that is a growing church. It's growing in unity and attaining to maturity. So after laying out these in the previous verses, these dynamics that we're going to talk about in a little bit, the text goes on to tell us just what it is that we should be aiming for as a church. And we're going to pick up our reading in verse 13. Until we all reach unity, that's our first term, unity in the faith, and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature. That's our second term, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. The church, a a good church, a church that pleases God, that's working according to his design, is a church that's always kind of growing in unity and is always maturing. A good church is a church in the process of attaining those two things. And we're going to talk more about that in a minute. But the text defines what it means by both unity and maturity. Our unity centers around our faith in God and our knowledge of Christ. It's all about God. Now, people can unite around all kinds of things, good things, neutral things, even things which are sinful. American society is splintered into seemingly endless identity groups. And the people in those groups are more or less like everyone else in it. And what sets Christianity apart is that all kinds of people who may have nothing else in common are united in the person of Christ. And this is nothing new to us. We've talked about this unity before. But that's a mark. That's what a a good church looks like. It has that kind of unity. And then the maturity of the church, well, it's not measured in its age. That is by how long it's been in existence. I mean, very young churches can show surprising maturity, while others which have been around for a long time don't. Nor is a church's maturity measured by the accumulated wisdom of its members. Rather, it's found in how much a church resembles Christ, or put it another way, how well we represent Christ to the world around us. You see, a mature church has attained to the whole measure of the fullness of God, as the text says. It is full to overflowing with Christ. A good church, one which pleases God, is a church in 
process a church growing in unity and attaining to maturity. Now, that's the way I put it. It's a process. And yet the text makes it sound like you can arrive in the place of unity and maturity. And so which is it? Is it a process or is it something we can attain? Well, it's both. (laughs) Uh, not, Not that we in this life ever truly arrive. Still, we can attain to certain good things. And without going into the detail in the Greek, the verbs here are subjunctive. And for our purposes, what that means is we can say this is what we want, this unity and maturity. But here's the deal. We can get there, but we won't stay there without some effort. That's where this process comes in. So you can think of it uh, uh, in this way. A very muscular man, someone not like me, but a very muscular man, can swim, and he can swim quite well. And while he's swimming, he's going to stay on the top of the water, but you know, as soon as he stops swimming, he begins to sink to the bottom. There's not enough fat on his body to make him float. And to stay on the top of the water, he has to swim. He has to exert some sort of effort or he sinks. And so a church becomes what God wants it to be. It intends it to be. It reaches this unity and this maturity. But, but in another sense, it hasn't arrived because it has to keep on keeping on. We can never stop. A good church, one that honors God, is always unifying. It's always maturing. It's always moving towards God. And just to close this section, I want to note that there are a couple of identifying marks of a church like that. The first one is, is the, the people there have a real purpose. They're steady. They're not rocked by the passing fads in the world or in Christianity. Verse 14, there we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. See, we're in a spiritual battle. And there are those out there who will lead you astray, and they are very crafty. But when you are moving toward God, uh, we're fulfilling our purpose. And the enemy can't deflect us from that path. And the second is, is there's this kind of transparency, what what I call a good, wholesome honesty in those churches, which... uh, which the Ephesians is telling us about here in verse 15. Instead, not being turned aside from our path, but instead speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Is it because of our relationship with Jesus we speak the truth? Not in arrogance, not in self-satisfaction, but we speak it in love. We speak the truth because we're loved by God and because we love God and because God wants to love others uh, through us. There's a wholesome honesty which cuts both ways in our relationships. We'll speak the truth to you gently and in love even as we admit our own failings. You see, we get to a place in our relationship with Christ and And a good church helps us to get there where we don't feel like, we don't want to hide anything anymore. We want the light to shine. A church, this good church, that's uh, 
A church that's pleasing God, to God is, is an ongoing process where it's always unifying and always maturing. It's a place with a real purpose and a wholesome honesty. And I have to tell you, I find that idea beautiful. <laughs> and I find it attractive. And I want to be a part of something like that. See, I want my life to count for Christ. And I know I cannot do it on my own. I need help from God Almighty and from my brothers and sisters. Now, can I tell you that I think, as a church, we are swimming on top of water. We're doing it. We, we've got a unity and maturity here. Uh, we're steady. We're not easily shaken. We're, we're marked by that kind of wholesome honesty that this text is talking about. We're not perfect, but we're moving towards God. There are areas we need to grow in, but we're not sinking to the bottom. God is at work here, and I am glad that he is. But we can't stop. You see, we have to keep on keeping on. And if that's what it takes to make your life for Christ, uh, count for Christ, then isn't that what you want? Would you want it any other way if that's what it takes? I can tell you this. If you're here, if you plug into this church and take up your part, you will have an impact on the world around you. Your life will count for Christ. And no matter how much you might want to, you simply cannot do this on your own. You need a good church, either this one or another one somewhere else. And if you can't find what you need here, then go to another one where you find it. Because you need it. All of us need a good church. But then every good church, <laughs> well, every good church needs people who desire to live a life worthy of our Lord, uh, whose life is, is committed to Christ. And that's the first dynamic which goes into the making of a good church. And so in verse 1 of this chapter, Paul writes, As a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. You see, Paul's commitment to Christ landed him in prison. And eventually it cost him his life. And as I mentioned earlier, many people in our world today are in prison because of their faith. And many have been killed for the sake of Christ. And who besides God knows what our future holds? Whatever it costs, we ought to desire. We ought to want to live a life worthy of the calling that we have received in Christ Jesus. The Bible goes on to tell us uh, what that life, uh, a life worthy of being named a Christian, looks like. I have to tell you, it's not what most people would assume. You know, most people, if, if you ask them, would not go beyond the rudiments of religion. They would think that all you need is to avoid sin and try uh, to be good. <laughs> And we should avoid sin and try to be good, but, but the worthy life goes way beyond that. And there are three things the text tells us about living a life which is worthy of our calling. 
uh, there are things we, we ought to know, so we're going to move rather quickly through them, but, but we need the reminder. And maybe for some, maybe it, it'll be new. First, if we want to live a life worthy of our calling, we have to have the right attitude about ourselves and about other people. Uh, so verse 2, we read, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. So having the right attitude about ourselves means that we're humble and patient. A humble person isn't one who is telling you all the time how bad he or she is. A humble person really is one who doesn't think a whole lot about himself or herself because they're too busy thinking about other people. And and for the same reason, patience comes more easily to the believer than if he or she weren't a believer. (laughs) Because we know something. We know life. It's not all about us. And having the right attitude to others means we should be gentle with them and supportive of them because of love. Now, I memorize this verse. I have to tell you, I memorize this verse because I know I'm not always gentle or supportive. I, I need the power of the word in my life because I want to honor Christ. But we're to be gentle and supportive to those who we know are struggling because that's what they need. But we're to do the same even to the obstinate. For, for they need our gentleness too, as, as we, for their sake, oppose the ways of their sin. See, gentleness doesn't mean weakness. We stand firm for the truth. The Proverbs says uh, a gentle tongue can break a bone. <laughs> Imagine having to take a splinter out of the finger of a young child splinter has to come out and you're as gentle as you can be but you're firm you're going to hold that hand and you're going to take that splinter out as gently as you can but firmly that's what it means to be gentle A, a, a life worthy of the calling is more than just avoiding sin or trying to be good. It means striving to have the right attitude about ourselves and other people. And it also means we endeavor to keep the unity which the Holy Spirit entrusts to us. In verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. You see, this unity that God wants for us has already been entrusted to us already by the Holy Spirit. The effort is to keep that unity. And we're going to come back to that in just a moment. But we ought to note verses 4 through 6, the next three verses, all of which tell us that every one of the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are involved in that unity. So first in the Spirit in verse 4, there's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope of your calling. And then the Son in verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And uh, the Father in verse 6, one God and Father over all who, I mean, of, uh, Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all united. And in them, we're to be united too. And what this verse tells me, what these verses tell me, is that unity is at the very heart of the universe because it's in the very heart of God. And that unity is a gift which God has given to us, his people, but that we have to maintain. 
That takes an effort on our part because of sin. <laughs> One day it won't be that way, of course, but now it is. So, so we get a kind of an idea of what the Scripture is teaching us here. If we, if we, um, if we were to imagine this unity that we were to ma- maintain, if we imagine that we inherited a, a piece of property with a beautiful garden on it, we, we didn't design the garden, we didn't plan it, we, we didn't cause it to grow. It was a gift given to us through that inheritance. But we have to maintain it. If we don't, the weeds will grow up and choke out some of the plants and the other good things in the garden. Well, they'll become overgrown and this growth of the, it'll, it'll stunt the growth of the smaller, more delicate flowers. And then slowly and, and maybe not so slowly, the beauty will fade away until seemingly all you're left with is a common stretch of ground. And yet, the reality is even then, all that garden, all that beauty is still there. Every seed for the flower, and shrubs, and trees are lying dormant in the ground, and that garden can grow again by the power of God. God has entrusted to the church the unity of the Spirit, which we are to maintain. And if it's fading, we need to do what we can to revive it with the help of God. I've already said it, but there's a unity here that God has given to us. And there is power in that unity. A life worthy of our calling means uh, striving to have the right attitude about ourselves and others. And it means making whatever effort is necessary to maintain the unity which God has given to his people. And there's more to it than just avoiding sin and trying to be good. The third way in which we live such a life, uh, this life worthy of our calling, is to exercise our spiritual gifts, uh, verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ has apportioned it to us. And verse 8 makes it clear that we're talking about spiritual gifts when we read. This is why it says, when he, that's Christ, ascended on high, he took captives, many captives, and gave gifts to his people. So Christ has captured us, right? Uh, and all for our good. He told Peter that he would make him a fisher of men. God takes a hold of us. He rescues us from our sin. He saves us from perdition. He makes us his own. But he also gives us gifts, and they are an expression of his grace. Now, we've seen this before, but the gifts are given not just for our enjoyment, though we do enjoy them, but they're given so that we can serve the body of Christ. They're given to us for the benefit of others. Now, there's this really great story in the Old Testament in uh, 2 Kings chapter 7, and it it involves uh, Elijah, but I won't mention him other than to say that he's kind of the centerpiece of it. But the northern kingdom, Israel, at this time, uh, their capital city was under siege, and uh, there was a famine within the city, and it became so bad that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver. So that, that's not only unappetizing, and though I don't know what a shekel really is, it sounds awfully expensive to me. But God in his grace delivered that city from the besiegers. And so one night, 
he caused the enemy soldiers who were besieging that city to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a vast army approaching. And they woke from their sleep and they thought they were being attacked. And in a great panic, they, they left the camp and everything in it and they ran for their lives. Now all, all of that was happening outside the city, uh, the gates of the city, there were four lepers starving just like those inside the city. And they decided that since they were dead men anyway, if they stayed there, well, they decided they'd go to the camp of the besiegers and they'd beg for mercy and a meal. Maybe they'd be killed, but they would be no worse off than if they stayed. So they went. <laughs> and that's when they discovered that the camp was deserted and they found all kinds of riches there and the food, especially the food. And they ate their fill, and they took some of the gold and the other things from one of the tents, and they went and hid it in the ground, and they went back to the camp to plunder it some more when it struck them that what they were doing wasn't right. It was a whole city that needed what they had, and so they went, and they told the people what they'd found. And God used those four lepers to save that city that day. And we're like those lepers. You understand that? We're sinners who, who have been delivered. And we've been given these gifts by God Almighty himself, which we are to use for the sake of other people. We're to share those gifts with others. A, a, a life worthy of our calling is more than just avoiding sin and trying to be good. It means having the right attitude about ourselves and others. Uh, making whatever effort is necessary to maintain the unity which God has given to his people and to bring back that beauty, that beauty if it's faded, and we're to use whatever gift we've received to advance his kingdom for the good of others. Now, if we want our life to count for Christ, we need to be a part of a good church. We need that. But as I said, good churches need us too. And one of the dynamics to bring about a good church are people who desire to live a life worthy of their calling. But there's something more that we need, and that too God has provided. You see, God has called certain people. He's given them to the church. And God uses these people to prepare others in the church so they can minister to people in need. Verses 11 and 12. So Christ himself gave uh, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may build, be built up. One of God's gifts to the church, one of the dynamics which work together with other essentials are people who are called and gifted by God to be apostles or prophets or evangelists, pastors, teachers. Now, I'll tell you, there's some debate about whether those first two listed there exist in our days or not, but everyone agrees on the last three. The evangel evangelists, the pastors, and teachers, they're given by Christ to the church, and they serve a very specific purpose. They are to equip, prepare, train other believers so those other believers can minister to, care for, serve those around them, both in the church and outside the church. 
So the evangelist brings people into the church, and the pastors and teachers get them ready for doing the work of the kingdom. And, of course, doing the work of the kingdom means using the gifts that they've been given, and we're here to help you to do that. And I hope you've noticed I've changed the pronoun in that last sentence because I'm one of those. I'm a pastor. And so is that bald guy sitting up there in the cave, Jim. He's a pastor. But that word pastor is used interchangeably uh, with the word elder. And so the elders of this church are here to help in equipping the saints. And then teacher applies to more than just elders. We have Webb and IBTs this morning and Celinda in Children's Church. We have Miss Vicky teaching children Sunday school. Chris Buckler leading a youth life group. And the list goes on and on. And all these people are given to the church to help others grow in their faith so they may become all that God intends them to be. And we, we do that are also helped in our faith by others as they use their gifts in service. So, so maybe the best way to understand it, it doesn't quite get us uh, there, but it'll at least point us in the right direction, is to think about a coach and a team. The team takes the field or the court or the rink. They're the ones who play the game. They score the goals, they make the tackles, they steal the ball, they block the shots, and they rush everywhere they're going. The coach is vital. If you don't have a good coach, uh, you almost certainly aren't going to win. And the best team in the world never reaches its full potential without good coaching. See, the coach sees the game from a different perspective. He or she can see what the other team is doing. They, they spot weaknesses, both in the opponents and in their, in their own teams. They, 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 they have some kind of training or experience which gives them credibility and enables them to be a, a real asset to those on the field playing the game. They encourage or admonish as necessary. There's a synergy there, working together. They accomplish more together than they could. It's just the sum of their parts. Players rise to higher levels than they would ever have alone. I saw a, a clip from a movie where a, a football player, I don't even know the name of the movie, but a football player couldn't crawl 10 yards with uh, another man on his back, crawling uh, on the ground until the coach got a commitment from him to do his best and then blindfolded him. And that man got on his back, and he began that process of moving down the field. And the coach encouraged him and wouldn't let him quit, and he crawled the whole length of the field with that other man on his back. He couldn't do it on his own. He needed what that coach could do for him. And that's why God gave people to the church. that, That image doesn't quite capture What's happening here? Because the evangelists and the pastors and the teachers are in the trenches with you. Maybe, maybe the better picture is that of a sergeant leading his troops against enemy forces up a hill to take that hill. In any case, it's God's design that some people are called and gifted to help other people to do their part in advancing God's kingdom. And our job doesn't consist merely of telling you not to sin or to try to be good. And we have to tell you that. We have a pretty big problem. 
We're here to help you to live a life worthy of Jesus Christ by helping you to think rightly about yourselves and others and by encouraging you to maintain unity, which is the gift of God to the church, by heartening you to use your gifts given to you by God to make a difference in the lives of, around, of those around you. And together, we are being built together, and that by Christ, into a good church, a church which is pleasing to him, which is always being unified, always growing and maturing, as a place that has a real purpose and a wholesome honesty, a, a church which is always moving towards God. And you know, there's one more dynamic, which is working together with uh, those who desire to uh, make their life count for Christ and and those called by God to help them on their way. Something that really almost goes without saying, and yet it needs to be said. You see, we are not in this alone. God is at work in the entire process. This passage concludes in verse 16. We're not going to spend much time here. We're just going to make note of it because you already know this. We read in verse 16, from him, that is Christ Jesus, the whole body, that's the church, joined together by every supporting ligament, that's you and me, the pastors, elders, and teachers, and evangelists, along with the believers in the church, that church grows and builds itself up in love as each does its part. But it is all from God, every bit of it's his plan. It's his work. It's to his glory. And he invites you and me to be a part of what he's doing in this world. I can't imagine anything better or greater than Come, join us as we together advance the kingdom of God. Would you pray with me now, please? Father, we know that there are so many other things that go on um, in your church, but we thank you for this word today uh, as it helps us, Lord, encourages us in our faith. I am so glad to be here at Y Bible Church. I am so glad for what you're doing here. And Lord, um, I, I am uh, just asking that, uh, that you would speak to every one of us here today. And we would hear and we would respond to you. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.